Often we think of our religious communities as safe spaces, places to rest, to reflect, and rejuvenate. At times, this thinking can lead to a loss of connection with real life. Our religious communities can become isolated from the lived experiences of ordinary people, and they can become unable to love people in times of pain and loss. So what do we do in response? We become brave. Today on Logosish, Elizabeth Hagen talks to us about her new book, Brave Church, and her work helping churches talk about difficult topics. All right, all right, all right. We are back for another wonderful episode of Logosish. We are not interviewing Matthew McConaughey today. However, we have some fun people on the podcast. We're going to get Brian in hopefully sometime later in this episode. He's just kind of disappeared on us. But Sarah is here today. Sarah, how are you doing? Uh, doing great. We are moving in like two weeks, two and a half weeks. So we are surrounded by boxes and chaos. An exciting time. It's always weird to ask you these kind of questions on this as though I don't live with you. <laughs> and as though we haven't been talking about this all morning in some way, shape or form. Well, you know, it's nice for other folks to know. How are you today? I'm surrounded by boxes. <laughs> I've packed books for literally days straight. <laughs> days straight. We have too many books. Can we get rid of some books? <laughs> Book hoarding is a real problem in this house. <laughs> Speaking of books, we are very excited today to have a Reverend Elizabeth Hagen on. She wrote a book called Brave Church, which is out now, and it's about having tough conversations in the church. Elizabeth, welcome. How are you? Hi, thank you for having me. I know the problem when you have too many books. But preacher types, we just have to have our books. I mean, in the commentaries alone, I mean, they weigh a ton. You can only pack so many in a box, right? Oh yeah, it is. The bulk of our boxes are those extra tough cardboard book boxes <laughs> from U-Haul. Yeah, the, the great tragedy for me has been discovering that the publishers have started to realize that they can charge more than $15 for their digital commentaries. And so now there's people who are like selling the print edition for a hundred bucks and then selling the digital version for 80 bucks instead of for $15. And it's making it hard on me, guys. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> anyway, Elizabeth, would you share some of your story with us? Um, tell us how you got to writing this book. Sure. Or just about your life, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So thank you for having me. My name is Elizabeth Hagen. I grew up in the South. I grew up mostly in um, Chattanooga, Tennessee, um, where my dad was a Southern Baptist pastor. I did not grow up with women in leadership positions. I saw women being Sunday school teachers and maybe I think the highest position I ever saw was being chair of the mission committee or something, but that was it. I, my mother still has a dream of being an usher, which she has never been able to fulfill because that's a man's job. So I think it's pretty crazy that I ended up being a pastor myself because that was just not something that I ever thought I could do or even had a, a dream to do when I was younger. In my tradition, there were pretty much two choices if you felt spiritually inclined toward ministry. And that was you could either be a, you, you could be a missionary, either single or 
married, preferably married. And if you were a really strong woman, then you should probably go live internationally because it was kind of the unofficial word was that strong women got sent abroad. So that's what I thought I wanted to do when I was in high school, when I began to feel called to ministry was to live internationally. Not that there's anything wrong with going internationally to work or to serve, but it wasn't until I was in college that I saw a woman being a pastor for the first time. It was at Baptist Church of the Covenant in Birmingham, Alabama. And I remember just sitting in the pews weeping and thinking, I can't believe this. And that's what I know that I would like to be. And I went to Duke Divinity School great Methodist school and (laughs) had a wonderful time there and I haven't been a pastor ever since. You know, my ordination was one of those days in my life that was just so, I don't know, almost out of body. I don't know if you guys remember your ordination services, but because it was just one of those things that everybody said, you'll never be able to do this. And then to be standing in those shoes and knowing that I was doing it. And then I had a call position. My first position was in the greater Washington, D.C. area on the Maryland side. Anyway, since then, um, the ministry that I feel like that I have been most attracted to and called to has often been with people who grew up on the outside of the church. Those who have had experiences of faith where they feel like they've been left out or they don't belong. And that's something that really resonates with my own story because I know what it's like When you have something within you that you know that you can't change, in my case, I was called to be a pastor in a tradition that didn't affirm that, I know what it's like to really go for it and to to lose support in the process. You know, there's many folks from my childhood that don't speak to me anymore because they think I'm a terrible person because I'm a pastor. And that's that's really hard. And I and I know what it's like to to walk this journey of finding your place in the family of God when those among you may not always like who you are or what you're doing. And that's part of the reason, part of the the factors that led me to write Brave Church. It's a book that seeks to be inclusive to stories and experiences of pain and suffering that have been caused by people that are just have happened in the world that that the church has really amplified by not including and recognizing. So Brian has officially just dropped in, but we are going to continue our conversation. So Elizabeth, I wanted to ask you, could you tell us a little bit about sort of the central premise of Brave Church? What What is the name Brave Church? And what did you kind of discover about the church experience and how it might be made more inclusive as you were writing the book? Sure. Let me tell you a little bit about how I got to writing this particular book, which may help answer the question. This is the second book that I've written. The first one was called Birth, Finding Grace Through Infertility. And it's the story of how um, my husband and I were on a long, long, long journey toward parenthood and all the ups and downs about that. And when I was doing what you do when you write a book, I was speaking at churches and conferences about this topic of infertility. I found that people didn't want to talk about infertility. And people said, could you please just talk about something else? And I said, well, don't you know, that's what my book's about. And that's why you invited me. It was quite a hilarious situation. So I started doing these workshops to still have these speaking engagements about grief that we don't talk about in church. And from that, I started to hear as, you know, a conference speaker or small group leader, folks that weren't in my local congregation, um, story after story of 
of people who had felt rejected or left out or felt like they couldn't bring a, a certain part of their life to the church. Griefs like, you know, someone in their family had gone to jail or someone was struggling with because of an experience of racism in their community. And I began to think about, well, how how important it might be to create a tool so that we're not just talking about grief in terms of someone dying, but we're talking about all the collective griefs that we share on our journey and how we might begin to start to have brave conversations about these topics that the church actually can do better if we have some intentionality around being brave. Absolutely. This is, wow. This is really important work and I don't even know where to begin. As United Methodist pastors, I think we've had very similar experiences of noticing what is and isn't okay to talk about in church. One of the things you talk about in your book is domestic violence. And I preached a sermon one Sunday when I had been at my church for about two or three years and it addressed domestic violence. I got more mail, emails, comments, calls about that sermon, and they were entirely all positive, but even older folks said, I've been in church my whole life. I've never heard a sermon about domestic violence. Even though in our town of 2000 people, we've had very public, horrible domestic violence situations just right around our church and community. And it's prevalent and needs to be addressed by the church, but isn't. So that was very relatable. Well, that's wonderful. I'm so glad you you did that. I mean, I when I was writing Brave Church, I was teaching it as I was writing, you know, make sure, you know, because sometimes you have an idea and you think, oh, this is really cool in your head. And then you get to actual people and they're like, no, that stinks. But I wanted to make sure it, it was resonating. And um, as I was teaching this, I realized for myself that it was the first time that I had talked about domestic violence. We did a whole Sunday on that and I had conversation feedback with members of my church. And what was fascinating to me is I heard stories in that context of folks who were regular attendees of the church who had survived an experience of domestic violence, who had walked away from abusive relationships and hadn't ever really talked about it. I mean, maybe they had their safe person or two in the church that maybe had been a safe home for them to go to or been emotional support to them through the process, but it was new to us. But you know what was so cool after doing the whole Brave Church study in our church, including domestic violence chapter, is that we, I had people come up with like new ideas. Like we celebrated domestic violence month. It wasn't even my idea for the first time in our church. You know, we were posting statistics and helplines in the, you know, the bathroom stalls and, you know, which was cool because we had people coming in and out of the building who weren't connected to our church and other, you know, using the space in other ways who've been why do you have all those domestic violence posters up? And so started having a lot more conversations. And I, I just was so glad for the openness, you know, of the space that you just don't know what's going to come from when you create space for conversations. Sounds like what you found too. Yeah. And I love that that inspired folks in your church to actually take action. That feels like such a Holy Spirit influenced thing. My one little sermon did not inspire so many things, but just talking about it felt good. Also, I think one of the things about talking about this in Christian circles, especially when there are certain Christian narratives that dominate, especially large swaths of the country, like in the Bible Belt, 
often in uh, Christian circles, Christianity is used as a scapegoat to excuse some of these things that happen and to evade hard questions. And having infertility struggles myself, you know, I've heard a number of Christianese, you know, dismissive sorts of things. And, and I think almost everyone I know who's struggled with infertility has heard these same kind of narratives. And as I talk with folks, I talked to someone two weeks ago who was told she wasn't praying hard enough. Yes, I've heard that too. Yeah. And that maybe if she was praying correctly or harder, that she would, she would have been given a child by God, which is not how God works and <laughs> nonsense. But um, I think it made the person who was saying it feel better to not have to grapple with that, to excuse it with Christianese and say, God's not bad. This person is just not praying, right? So I, I can remember when I was reading the book of just thinking about like how so much of what like those very negative things that Christians end up doing, they don't mean them all. Well, they don't always mean them to be negative. Sometimes they do. That so much of that is cultural and has nothing to do with like what's in scripture, what's in the major beliefs of the church. Like how can we not talk about some of the conversations that are just in this book simply through like what we engage in in scripture like infertility is a huge topic within scripture and so is our understandings of like race or nationality uh, ethnicity and origin like that's a huge part of scripture's narrative too and yet we we're just like oh we want to be uh and I'm going to call out white Christians. We just want to be comfortable. And so we will do anything to just make it okay in our own minds, let alone what it does to someone else in order for it to be comfortable. Yes, you're hitting it, Brian. I mean, I think we need a, a larger narrative of real life and of weaving out the things that are just part of our culture. I mean, I talk a lot about our obsession with Mother's and Father's Day celebrations in the church in the infertility chapter. God forbid we don't celebrate Mother's Day with roses and candles and flowers, you know, and all the things in many contexts that I have served as a pastor. It's like a personal offense. But what we don't do is we don't unpack the larger text, right? About like, who God is and how God moves toward the hurting. We don't unpack the idea of like, what is the family and what are we celebrating and what, what in the world Mother's Day, really the history of Mother's Day, you know, what, what was the intention of that and why are we celebrating it in the way that we, we are? Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, no church I ever served needs to celebrate Mother's Day, Father's Day, Memorial Day, Veterans Day. Why? They're not Christian holidays. It's That's true. not it's why true. we're there. Enjoy your Monday slash Sunday afternoon. Like that's it. Yeah. But you know, the amount of pushback we get, right. As pastors, when we begin to call out cultural Christianity and invite people into deeper conversations, it's just, it's not necessarily what people always want to hear. And I, you know, I know you all have been in the trenches too. How many colleagues I know that, you know, they tried to take the flag out of the sanctuary or they've not celebrated, you know, um, the 4th of July with the proper patriotic hymns, you know, and they just get lambasted. I think, you know, the movement of the spirit is always causing us and leading us toward um, being brave and knowing that we're not always going to be liked as leaders. We're not always going to be liked in terms of our cultural Christian presence in our community, 
But the gospel, to be truly good news, it has to speak to the pain and the suffering and the loss that so many of us have in our lives. Yeah, I've often been really struck by how many people are just like, let's just kind of take this one little verse out of context and let's turn it into a moral paradigm and then let's not ask any more questions about it. And then that seems to be how a lot of the culture has formed. And one of the things that really struck me in the book was your story about, I think it was the president of the Southern Baptist Association who made the comment about how he would make a decision about whether or not to advise somebody to get a divorce based on how bad the abuse was. Mm. And it's just like not anything about worrying about a person's safety or caring for them or worrying about the goodness, but but upholding this sort of arbitrary, imaginary rule that is incidentally not actually in the book. Let's let's affirm that right now, right? But right. like it, it's just it's so incredibly tone deaf and departs so much from an actual stance that is focused on both grace and forgiveness and love and care that it's just mind boggling to me. Well, I, I think, you know, in many places in Brave Church, I'm asking, I'm asking a small group to really wrestle with this material and really check themselves and check their, their context for how they are using theology in such a way that is causing harm. And it is not the original intent, you know, everything from how we speak a prayer, like the example you gave Sarah, I, I can't tell you how many times when I was struggling with infertility, people would either give me books that the whole point was like, be like Hannah and pray and cry more, <laughs> goodness gracious. Or, you know, the way that we talk about praying for people with mental illness and not giving them the proper medical psychiatric care that they need. Or we talk about praying for people that are in abusive relationships and not thinking about their safety and the, you know, their physical well-being. Praying about race relations in this country, you know, and not actually doing the hard work of moving toward those in whom need us to make different life choices that show our privilege uh, and our bias. I mean, it, it really is, and, and I appreciate how you're bringing this out, it really is a theological issue, you know, when we, we, we need to really examine again what it is that we're, we think Christianity is all about. If we're not welcoming the stranger, if we're not welcoming the people that have felt lost and alone, you know, the, the church I grew up in as a child, it was a place where we talked a lot about theology. We learned memory verses. I was in Bible drill. I could tell you the books of the Bible forwards and backwards, you know. But when it came to real life and the practical application of someone in the youth group who, you know, was cutting themselves, where was Jesus then? And I, I, I want to believe that Jesus is right there and the person that's in so much pain that they're self-harming and that our theology as we are pastors and teachers and leaders and members of faith communities has to speak to that pain. Um, and we can't pretend like it's not there. Yeah, absolutely. And it is a tough line to walk in practice. As y'all mentioned, Mother's Day, Father's Day, and some of those holidays. I mean, they're not church holidays, but I feel like we can draw good things from them. And I'm far from perfect about this. I have taken off the past couple Mother's Days as like a self-care kind of model. But in previous times when we would have the children pass out roses, et cetera, because 
as you said, I think they would have burned down the church if we didn't acknowledge Mother's Day right. instead of- and Maybe that would have been a good thing, Sarah. Maybe <laughs> that would have been a good thing. Sometimes it's all right to die. Anyway, we just, I use that moment to talk about God as a mother. Mm, that's great. That. Yeah. Don't get to talk about that a lot in rural churches and talking to the kids and consequently to the congregation about giving every woman a rose there because we are all mothers. And I mean, I think I phrased it much better, but trying to like be more inclusive with that language instead of like, aren't mothers a sacrificial, wonderful thing that just give up their whole lives for everything. And, you know, there's a class of mother and then you're either mother or not mother. And instead trying to frame it as we are all mothers in that God is a mother and we are made in the image of God. I mean, again, not perfect, but no. And I, I think, I think brave in general is a, is a muscle, you know, like we can't just like change the whole shebang tomorrow because we want it to be different sometimes, you know, um, the pastoral way that we work with people in relationship over a period of time is that we take a little step this year and then we take another little step next year and we teach as we go. And I I think beautiful things happen when we embody a relationship of grace you know, with our people and and model for them really thinking through our traditions. Yeah, I was really struck by your emphasis on relationship in the book and how you talk about developing affection for others, especially others who disagree with you. You know, it's one of those things that, that I think we all grapple with is how are we supposed to be in relationship with people who are just in in such a living in such a different world from the one that we're experiencing, even if they live just right down the street. And how do we begin to bridge those divides, especially in, in church ministry where you're called to service and care of, of pretty much anybody who walks over the threshold of the door, that service and care can take different shapes and forms and, and be structured in different ways. But at the same time, you know, it's a, a matter of conscious and love and care that that this is available to anybody. Yeah, I know. I mean, haven't we all been thinking a lot about this for several years, especially as our nation feels all the more divided with, you know, I'd say since 2016, in many ways, our country's been on fire in particular areas of conversation. And it's certainly something I've thought a lot about both in my own personal life and in writing Brave Church because I don't want to be a person that just walks away from relationships, you know, if there's disagreements, but I also believe in healthy boundaries. And sometimes relationships just aren't safe and estrangement can be a good thing. But I do think that there is one common denominator that really does help with these sorts of conversations. And that is open hearts. I'm about to sound really Methodist. What isn't it like open hearts, open minds? What's the other one? (laughs) Open Open doors. Yeah. Open doors. And if only it was actually true. It's aspirational. Um, <laughs> my my Duke friends would be proud. Yeah, I, I think it does start with open hearts because you know your mind can your mind can shift um, if your heart is open, but you have to start with that open heart to receive people. And and that's what I say I do in the work I do now, whether I'm serving a, a local congregation or not, is that I invite open-hearted Christians to uh, conversations, difficult conversations that foster a sense of acceptance. 
and belonging. And I want to tell you one kind of inside story, which is who the book was dedicated to. It's a person by the name of Beth. And um, Beth was my teacher in high school, which is kind of cool that I still keep up with her. I went to a, a private Christian school because I think some people in my family were concerned about some racial issues in my town, which is a whole other story. (laughs) But I went to a private Christian school and Beth was my Bible teacher. And we've connected and reconnected through the years. She's become like a great adult friend for me and my life. But, you know, there's biblical or theological issues that sometimes we have disagreements on, you know, which is really hard for a mentor (laughs) um, type person to realize that, you know, I love you so much, but we I can't believe you think that, or maybe she thinks I, you can't believe that I think that, but we stay in conversation and we've nurtured a long-term friendship where I know that if I need her, she will be there. And I hope that she feels the same about me. And that, that like what you're saying, the human part of the relationship is so important. And we are both in the case of my friend, Beth, we're both open-hearted to each other. And from that, I think, you know, beautiful, unexpected things can happen. And and that's what I think is really the key ingredient of, of being brave is that you, and what I'm proposing in these small group covenanted settings that a brave church community would do together is that you sit with, with a group of people and you have an open heart to what might happen in that session, to hear their experiences and for not only just to be heard, but to listen as well. So that like just in general leads me to like part of the book, just to bring it up. And when you talked about like kind of the ministries that New City Church was doing around issues of mental health, we actually went to Candler with Tyler Sit. So, oh, that's so um, fun. Can you just briefly like summarize kind of what they're doing and how you feel like that's making a an impact both for their congregation but for their community so just as a side note in each chapter um and i maybe i haven't said this already but in brave church i talk about five major topics um infertility and miscarriage mental illness domestic violence racism and sexuality and in each chapter i'm i did some work to introduce you a church or two that's doing something innovative in that area and in the mental um, illness chapter i i talk about my interview with tyler sit who's the church planning pastor of a church in uh, minneapolis and he is working primarily with people of color and the lbgtq community and one of their mental health focuses is around the fact that if you live in minnesota you don't get a lot of sunlight and seasonal what is it seasonal affective disorder is that what it's called yeah. is a big deal if you live in Minnesota and, you know, being attentive to that in his ministry is one thing that they do. But then they're also um, in the process of offering grants for spiritual direction and therapy to those in whom in their community may not have the opportunity to receive it. That that's a big mental health concern for him and his church and that that has been something that's been really well received because if you say you want to love the whole person and attend to the whole person's needs and you know, we talk a good talk about how important counseling and therapy is. We could all use a good therapist, right? Therapy has been a big part of my life and my journey of wholeness. But for people that can't afford it, that's a huge deal. That's an equity issue. And um, really appreciate what Tyler's doing. And, and, uh, and I think that the work 
of the church being in conversation around issues of mental health helps break that kind of stigma that stops the rest of the country from talking about it. I've never met a single person who didn't need to go to therapy for something. Right. Um, and that's not to like be like dismissive or anything. It's just true. We all have to talk through things. And sometimes we need mental health through better chemistry. And that's just a reality. Right. Um, that was one of my kind of like jaw dropping moments in writing this is the research that I encountered a study that was done that was interviewing pastors and the pastors that were interviewed said that 94% of them knew someone in their church was struggling with some sort of mental health or mental illness issue, but only 12% of them said that they'd ever personally or heard the topic addressed in a pastor's teaching from the pulpit or otherwise. And I just, it's, you know, it, it called me accountable to continue, you know, because it's kind of like the rules of social media. You can't just say something once and think that everybody knows what you think. You've got to keep saying it right. You got to keep showing up and doing the work. And, you know, for me to be able to use pastoral opportunities, I have to say, you know, hey, I've dealt with depression in my life and hey, I've had medication before. It's not terrible. Hey, therapy is really effective in helping, helping you process life trauma. You know, being a human being is freaking hard. <laughs> There's nothing easy about the human experience, no matter where we live or what our story is. And yeah, I mean, just we all as leaders, I think it starts with us. We have to talk about it. Yeah. The church Absolutely. really could be a big leader in these issues for the rest of the population. And um, I'm wondering where we think this idea that Christians had to be perfect to sit in pews sort of originated and how that, I don't know, how we could get back to being more authentic about the human experience because being, a, being human is freaking hard. And I think that should be one of our t-shirts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. I think that we think that like we're representatives of Jesus and Jesus was perfect, you know? And if we mess up, then we make Jesus look bad. I think there's so much that goes on where we hide things right in the church. And I don't mean that like just local church. I just mean, you know, larger denominations and bodies and groups where we've hidden massive sexual abuse scandals, or we've hidden massive failures to do X, Y, and Z. And we're afraid of being honest about them because we think we we're going to make God look bad, but God is God. And I think God lives in a place of truth and honesty and, and ask us to do the same, but it's, it's really hard when, you know, our culture wants to heap upon us shame and we feel shame ourselves that we have to kind of work through about our less than perfect choices. I lost my thought. Hang on. <laughs> so, so, I mean, John, it, before, like, are you moving on? No, no, no. I was trying to think of an appropriate way to say that we should all, of course, be Methodists because we're all on a journey and that's great. And all we need to do is just be a little more like hippies, just hanging out having a good time. Well, <laughs> you might you might be the first person ever to describe Wesley in that sense or in or any Methodist in that sense. Let but. me emphasize that he really mellowed out towards the end of his life. And we don't talk about that enough. Oh, it's absolutely true. But I'm thinking about just Sarah's thought about where does this idea come from in the church? And I am a real big fan of blaming Constantine and cultural Christianity of kind of emerging at that point. 
Uh, in history simply simply because a rapid expansion in people changed how the church related to the world and all of a sudden this very countercultural movement became what the culture was and it kind of lost a lot of its identity and identity in that and so I, I have a feeling Sarah that that's at least a factor uh, and maybe the prevalence of the church in the world yeah, has know. caused us to tr- reflect the world more than to reflect Jesus. That's a better way of making my point. They were just a bunch of hippies, and then all of a sudden they had to run institutions. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> that is perfect. Now I can go back to dwelling on wondering what you think I need to go to therapy for. Oh, we can talk about that we another can talk time. <laughs> Man, everybody has input on this? Oh, yeah, Sure. Anyone who's been in therapy just starts to, <laughs> sorry, we've gone off. Well, right. I just have a question for the three of you, since you're on the front lines of ministry in churches. What do you feel is the greatest obstacle to your ministry of being brave? Like what holds you back from being brave in your context? And maybe it's, you can't answer publicly, but. I think we've, I, I think I've talked about it. And I know Garrett, is, who's not with us today, has talked about it a little bit before too, but personal insecurity and feeling, which is terrible. Again, this is one of the reasons therapy is good. Wanting to be liked, I think, is a problem that most pastors and pastoral personalities have. But coming from like a very city context and being raised in a church, I was baptized by a woman in the 80s and I never, I never had... I mean, there were small things, but it wasn't until I was an adult that I learned like how harmful so many churches were to people because I grew up in a very progressive, embracing, loving city Methodist church. So moving from that context to a rural church where being a woman in ministry was still kind of a scandalous idea, I feel like over the past several years in ministry, I've negotiated my personality in many ways. And felt like I had to be palatable. So things that I do have to be kind of carefully considered and coated in sugar, which isn't true, but that's just how I've operated and functioned and how it's been. I think in many ways it's been helpful and I've been able to make some progress with opening the church to certain things, this local church to certain things, but in other ways has been a hindrance, if that makes sense sense. Yeah, I think you can also add to that a certain amount of decision paralysis. Like when you walk into a room and you're trying to evaluate where everyone is at in their personal journey and you're thinking, oh, well, we need to communicate this in a way that people won't shut down when they hear it. Sometimes that task, just the task of communication can feel very overwhelming, especially like my my example would be talking about human sexuality. And, you know, there's folks who they hear the word sex in church, and I'm going to say it a couple more times just to be antagonistic, sex, sex, sex. But, you know, they hear the word sex in church and they're like, nope, we don't talk about that in church. And then you add on conversations about other things related to sexuality, including gender identity and things of that nature. And then the conversation gets more complicated and, and I really struggle, especially if I'm in a room of folks who have been raised in a tradition and they have never imagined that there could be somebody else who could disagree with them 
on these topics in a rational, compassionate, and well-thought-out way. The decision paralysis comes in when then it becomes, well, how do we have this conversation without it dissolving into a total like disaster where people just rant about all the other people that they dislike and that they don't understand and so on and so forth. And so the process of building the foundation can become so time-consuming that it makes the whole task a daunting one and, and very intimidating, especially if you have a limited amount of time. Yeah. And Brian's yeah. in a bit of a different context. So I'm interested to hear how he. So um, I, I've served in two different local churches in the, this is my sixth year serving as a pastor. And I want to own up to the fact that I have a great deal of privilege in the fact that, I mean, yes, I'm a white, cisgender, heterosexual male pastor, but I also serve in a much more moderate context, both theologically and socially than John and Sarah do. And that has enabled me to really bring up things, I think, more quickly, just to be honest. The context has made that possible. But I think the hardest part is that this has to be like a holistic approach. Like if you're really going to address like in this brave church kind of style that you have to be willing to engage with people in relationships and have the relationships be strong enough that then you can address something that's deeper. Um, Both of the churches where I've served um, also aren't very biblically literate. And so sometimes you have to give them a scriptural foundation that encourages and maybe uh, compels them to like dive into this kind of deeper conversation on a difficult topic. John brought up human sexuality. I was able to, due to issues going on within the United Methodist Church over the last several years, uh, we actually had like open conversations and forums about different theological understandings of human sexuality as as it's defined in the discipline and i was able to actually voice my opinion and folks in the congregation really heard me and really responded and we found out that a lot of folks actually really wanted the church to be more inclusive and affirming of lgbtqia persons uh, plus persons and that most of them didn't voice their opinions on that previously because no one had ever stepped out and said that in a Mm -hmm. very public way. Um, So I did that wrong first. I I said it in a sermon first, like, and I'd only been there nine months. And that I caught a lot of flack for that. But then over the course, I was there for five years after that. So that enabled me to encourage more conversation over a period of years. And that's, and I'm not going to say that they're perfect. They're still pretty moderate, but folks who are, a little bit more theologically and socially progressive have a lot more influence in that congregation now than they did before. Uh, and then I got moved because that's the life of a Methodist pastor. Now I serve in like the most theologically progressive congregation in my city. And so I was able to do that like right away. It's not a, it's not a huge conversation for them. Right. In the, in the same way. Well, and, and I think your answers, I appreciate them so much because it's all contextual, right? Like how we move and bravery has a lot to do with our context. Um, and I know we've been talking a lot about bravery in the larger sense of, of leadership. 
But Break Church as a book, I really think boils it down to an actual process, like to give a congregation a concrete tool to say, do this, that it it sets up the intentionality around saying, okay, we have these ideas about what safe space is, or these ideas about what it's like to be a church, you know, where we do things like agree to disagree, or we don't take things personally, or we keep quiet if we, our feelings are hurt. And we just kind of throw those out a bit and we expand them to accept that conflict's going to happen and commit to the way of kindness or to understand that respect for me is not going to be the same as respect for you. And we have to learn that. And that's what I really hope that people will take away from Bright Church is that, I mean, I hope you read the book. That's, I wouldn't have written it if I didn't want people to read it, but I hope people actually do the book, which is that they get together a small group um, in their congregation that would be, you know, commit to learning together and to being brave together and, you know, covenanting to these particular brave rules that I set forth. And then, you know, having the, the study be a guide in which to spring forward some new conversations. I mean, I think there is power in just speaking the words racism or speaking the words infertility. You know, I, I've been in pulpits where I'm the first person who's ever said the word infertility from the pulpit, people told me later and, and how, you know, women have said to me, thank you, thank you, thank you. There's so many spaces in people's hearts that need to be just ha- have the opening. And I think that's what a brave, a brave church group could invite people into. Wonderful. Who knew that healthy conflict management would be a skill that we all needed to learn. (laughs) Don't we all? (laughs) So usually as we hit around this time in the podcast, we kind of start to wind down and we try to do that on a really, really positive note by asking everyone what is bringing you joy this week, or if it's been a particularly difficult week, what's getting you through the week? So how are you guys doing? What is bringing you joy and life? What is making your heart shine? What is making butterflies fly out of your, I'm not going to finish that sentence. Anyways, what is everybody appreciating and enjoying? Uh, It's been kind of a rough week (laughs) church wise. So, but we, uh, as I said, we're moving and our three cats and a dog are part of that moving consideration. So Our cats are entirely indoors. They don't wear collars. So I decided to order some collars for them to um, just get used to them and then have like little tags. So in case something they get out while we're moving, but they all got very stylish collars with bright colors and bow ties. And so we have these kitty cats running around our house in bow ties. And this is not a theologically significant, joyful thing, but it is... Uh, emotionally significant to me and makes me really happy. So cats with bow ties is my my answer this week. I, I also have one that is completely like just random. So I moved in July and Virginia has had a lot of very restrictive kind of measures to kind of keep COVID suppressed. We've been really good about that. Like very glad that those things are the case. One of the things that made that not so great during the moving process is that I was not able to go to a DMV to get a new like driver's license with my current address and things like that. And you would be surprised how often you need to show where you live. And so I wasn't really able to do that without like a state issued driver's license and things like that. And thanks be to God, 
11 months later, my driver's license finally came. Um, so at least I didn't have to wait at the DMV. It just came. So praise God. That is certainly a celebration, Brian. Elizabeth, what about you? Well, my husband and I on Saturday night, we went um, we went on a date, which is always exciting. We had a, I have a four-year-old, so we had a babysitter. And we went to the movies, which sounds pretty boring um, pre-COVID, but it was so exciting because our little vaccinated selves went to a real movie theater and had real popcorn. We were alone without the child. <laughs> It was really exciting. We saw the movie Cruella, um, which my husband was kind of rolling his eyes, but I quite enjoyed it. We're pretty psyched about that one. And I think I may have just changed mine because this is actually not bringing me joy right now, but we did go to the movies uh, a couple of weeks ago, I guess now, and enjoyed that IMAX Dolby digital surround sound super experience. And uh, it it was quite a delight. I think I think the one I was going to mention a second ago is is we are officially back in uh, protective padding and gear for Kendo as of this past week, and so people hit me with sticks, and it was great, and I hit people with sticks, and it was great, and we had a just good time, just kind of wailing on each other and enjoying full contact sports again. For those of you who don't know. John is the equivalent of a black belt in kendo. Which is Japanese sword fighting. (laughs) Okay, I have never heard of that. So you've just made my day. I've learned something new. When Sarah and I started dating, I would routinely come home with bruises in weird places. And I think it may have made her think some second thoughts about even accepting a, a you know proposal from me to go out on a date. No, you still come home with random bruises <laughs> from martial arts, but uh, just used to it now. Whatever makes you happy. I'm glad to hear you say that in public on a podcast. I'll uh, I'll definitely save this recording. Yeah, I mean I paint, so it's not uncommon for me to have like paint somewhere weird on my shoes or face, you know. We all have marks of our hobbies and loves. So Elizabeth, uh, as we close, where can people find you if they want to see more of your work or just hear more from you? Sure. So you can find me at uh, elizabethhagan.com. If you're interested in Brave Church, you can find it um, wherever you buy books. It is available now. And, you know, like I was saying before, my real hope is that people will do this and um, do this book together. And so what I'm looking for is churches that would be willing to be a part of my cohort, my very first cohort of brave churches this fall. That would, all that would entail is getting a small group together saying we're going to do this for anywhere from four to um, seven weeks. And um, I'm pledging if you're in the first cohort that I'll be a personal support to your group help out your leader in any way and willing to zoom in or be present personally if it's possible to one of your group meetings. So if that's something that interests you, get in touch with me at elizabethhagen.com and I look forward to hearing from you. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Elizabeth. We really enjoyed reading your book, Brave Church. It is out now as of last Tuesday. And everyone who has been listening so far just uh, keep on joining us every week or so on the podcast Uh, check out our bookshop like subscribe all that junk that other podcasters recommend you do 
it really does help uh especially those five star reviews five five stars all five stars please thank you very much but have a wonderful week guys Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at logosishpod. Please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast, and have a great week.